0: Okay, this afternoon we're privileged to have one of God's servants come and speak to us and share God's word, and this will be uh, Reverend Desmond So. And uh, many of you who have been in church for a long time, you know that Desmond uh, has been a long-time member of our church, and you also know he was a missionary for us in Indonesia for a number of years, and that he has now returned to Singapore and is now a lecturer at Singapore Bible College. And uh, he carries on a pretty extensive speaking ministry uh, all over the region, and so we thank the Lord for him. And uh, also uh, reminded that uh, we have many missionaries who in our church who have gone forth and have been blessed, and God is using mightily. Uh, one of those was Zeping and Heidi. Uh, we just got word that they were able to find uh, better housing than they had. And that was quite an answer to prayer. And God has even provided a, a tutor from Switzerland who was assigned to Wycliffe, who also served as a tutor for their children uh, in their education. And so, wow, that's a wonderful provision of the Lord. And if you look in your bulletins, you also see that uh, William and Karen Lynn have landed safely in Thailand, and they are hitting the ground moving. And so be sure to remember them there in Chiang Mai. So, uh, without further ado, uh, Desmond has asked our brother Toshi to come and to read the scripture for us, and then Desmond will come right up after that.
1: Good afternoon. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 19. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people.
2: Can you hear me? Oh, good. And there was sound. <laughs> I bring you warm greetings again from Singapore Bible College, where I serve as one of the lecturers there. In fact, there are two of us from Grace Baptist that serves there. One is myself, and the other one is uh, Dr. Ko Xiang Kiang, whom you know as Siang. Thank you again for your partnership and also I also bring you warm greetings from uh, Reverend Dr. Clement Chia, our seventh principal. He was newly appointed. And uh, as a newly appointed, as a newly appointed um, principal, he has a lot of plans and uh, because he has a lot of plans, many of us are tasked to do those plans. Uh, I'm tasked to do one of those plans, and that is to publicize uh, Singapore Bible College, which is why I bring you warm greetings from him. But not only just that, but I'll, well, I was also tasked to uh, take care of the 65th anniversary next year and also the 500 years of Reformation uh, that will be celebrated around the world. And that, those two events are huge events, and uh, we are trying our best. My team and I are trying our best to put together not only just the 65 years of history of Singapore Bible College, but also 500 years of Reformation history. Now, if you are tasked to tell a story, if you are asked to do something like that, and what, what we call it uh, in Indonesian, uh, to connect them together, you know, to connect them together, what would you do? I mean, there are so many people in the Reformation, there are so many big names in history, of Singapore Bible College, including one of our uh, pastor emeritus, Dr. Ian Polson himself, who is the founding dean of the School of Theology English. There are so many people who have contributed uh, to, the, to the school as well as to the Reformation. So, who do we begin to start to uh, discuss, to introduce, and to put together as a complete story of the Reformation as well as Singapore Bible College's history? So those are the challenges I face apart from grading papers and teaching students. um, And some of them may be here today, I do not know. Um, But nevertheless, I am glad that I was tasked to do so because I was also tasked by our pastor to preach today on the story of Jesus in the New Testament. Now, if you are me and uh, we, we, we study the Word of God every day, Jesus Christ um, is really the center and the circumference, the length and the breadth, the heights, the depths of everything that we do in the Bible. All 66 books of the Bible talks about Jesus Christ, alludes to Jesus Christ. And some of the books, which never even mention His names, points to Him. And I believe last week, uh, someone would have, I think it was Kim who would would have preached uh, on... Uh, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And today, I'm assigned Jesus Christ as the New Testament. And I ask myself this question, how am I going to introduce someone properly, especially the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? How am I going to introduce my Jesus properly and his story properly? So usually when you think about introducing people, you think about introducing them, for example, they are the title, right? He's Mr., Miss something, his professor of this, is reverend, uh, his doctor this. And then you give the name of the person, right? My name is Desmond So, my lovely wife there is Wendy. And so you introduce names. Then you follow that with the per- person's position. Maybe he's a lecturer in a Bible college. He's a doctor, medical doctor in the orthopedic uh, department in Singapore General Hospital, a long time ago, um, or perhaps you know you, you you say that oh he's a missionary he's a pastor he's a, a servant of the Lord, and then of course you tell the person a little bit about the background. But how do you really introduce Jesus properly? How do you really introduce Jesus properly? And this is where I struggled with this when I was given this uh, title, quite honestly. And I asked myself, how do I really introduce Jesus? And I searched through Scripture, there's so many passages. I could have gone all the way back to, to, all the way to the end, to Revelation, and talk about Jesus saying that He's going to come back. So we better watch out, we better not cry. Um, or I could talk about, you know, in, in Hebrews, for example, talking about all the prophets uh, introducing Him and pointing to Him. He's greater than Melchizedek, He's greater than Aaron, you know, He's greater than all the great high priests or the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Or I could even talk about inefficience or, or even Romans, you know, talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. All those things are great. But if you are me, if you are me, you'll enjoy a story, right? I love it when, when my mom, you know, when, when she goes for travels, she comes back, she'll tell me stories of the country. And when I'm about to sleep, she'll tell me once upon a time, telling me stories. And everybody loves a story. And I thought to myself, okay, let's find a story, but I cannot preach the entire gospel uh, or four gospels altogether in 20 minutes. So what can I do? And the Lord led me to this passage, this story which Jesus himself talks about. In fact, this is not just any other ordinary story. This is what we call a parable. And Jesus himself introduces himself in the story. And before he introduces himself, you must understand in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is recording for us, for the benefit of Theophilus, if you read it in chapter one, a series of things, a chronological, a series of events, telling you the story of Jesus. And Jesus himself has already introduced himself in earlier on in the gospel. Gospel of Luke chapter 4, for example, verses 18 and 19. Just before he stepped up into his public ministry, he was in his own hometown. He was given a scroll, and as all good Jews would do, he would open up the scroll and read the scroll. And then keep quiet after that. And the rabbi will come forward and explain the scroll. And perhaps maybe make a few comments here and there. But that's about it. But Jesus, in fact, said this quite interestingly. He was handed over the, the scroll in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And I'll talk about that towards the end of the sermon. But He said to, him, to, to the, everyone who was there, He said in Luke chapter. 4 verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the Jubilee. What He was saying is that Jesus, in fact, after He read that, He put it aside, and He said to the rest of the people "That He said, today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. And everybody was like, wow. What do you mean? All these five things, uh, proclaiming the good news to the poor, like sending me to proclaim the liberty of the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set those people who are oppressed free, and to proclaim the jubilee year found in Leviticus 25, What do you mean by that, Jesus? And Jesus continuously proclaimed and demonstrated what He meant when He healed the sick, the lame, when He gave sight to the blind, when He walked on water, when He fed the 5,000, when He calmed the storms. He proclaimed and authenticated what He said, that this is being fulfilled as they heard it in that synagogue some 2,000 years ago. In fact, as we come forward right now to Luke chapter 19, just before the passage that Toshi read for us, we read in Luke chapter 19, here was a very interesting man. He's a little bit short. He's a chief tax collector. Jesus is about to walk and enter and climb uphill towards Jerusalem. They are near Jericho, at the outskirts of Jericho. And of course, there's a huge crowd interested in all the miracles that Jesus did. And this man called Zacchaeus came and climbed up a sycamore tree. And of course, people were gossiping and saying a few things. And can you imagine how ridiculous it is, a grown man climbing up a tree dress to catch a glimpse of his idol, perhaps? And so Jesus called Zacchaeus to come down. And people murmured because, oh, he, he wants to go to the house of the tax collector, the sinners, the bus. And Jesus said this, emphatically, he said this, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So these two, in the Gospel of Matthew to me, are very important statements that Jesus said. He came for a purpose, and the purpose is to seek and to save the lost. And which is why when he entered into Jerusalem, and our pericope, the passage that we all read, was part of a longer storyline of the controversies that he has made in Jerusalem, all the way to the day that he was crucified on Friday. The day that he entered into Jerusalem, people were shouting Hosannas. And we read that, obviously, that there were a whole group of people, starting from Luke chapter 19, verses 28, all the way to 21, chapter 21, verse 4. We see that triumphant entry into Jerusalem, him riding on a colt, people throwing palm branches on the feet, fulfilling the great prophecies of the Old, Old Testament. And then, as he looked upon Jerusalem, he wept and cried, and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Why? And as we continue on with that, those few passages, we realize that as he entered into the temple, which in earlier on, if you remember in chapter 2, where he was a teenager, well, almost a teenager, entered and said that he must be in his father's house. And again, he entered into this house of his father. He began Cleansing away those stuff. People were selling all sorts of things. Spices and and sacrificial things. Oils, perhaps. And he threw that all away and he he created a whole big hoo-ha out of that. And the religious leaders we read were really upset with him and questioned him, by what authority do you do all these things? And this is where we come to chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. Just before the passage that the story of Jesus was being mentioned. And we read in chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, the Pharisees were angry with him because here is a young upstart who had no theological training, never been to SBC. He probably didn't look as good as the lecturers there. And uh, he said, by what authority do you do all these things? And so instead of answering these Pharisees, Jesus reminded them, that His authority does not come from them, the religious systems of those days. And so He asked back a question. He asked them, I will also, verse 3, He says, He answered, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And this is where the Pharisees were caught in a bind. Because if they were to say, from heaven then why did they persecute him? But if they were to say from man, they knew that the crowd were crazy and they were loving John the Baptist so much that that would almost be a heresy by itself. So they said they, do, they didn't know. And so Jesus didn't answer them. And he continued on by saying this story, this once upon a time story. And he tells them, this parable. And this is a story that is within a story. Why do I say that? As you know, all stories must have certain parts to make it a, a story. Most Hollywood uh, movie directors will know how to craft a proper movie because those are the necessary ingredients to make it look good. There will be always actors. That means there are characters within that story and there are points of view. P-O-V is the point of view where they are seeing from. Of course, there are actions as well, the plot line, and of course, leading up to a climax. And finally, of course, there is the answer, which is the resolution to the story after the climax, the resolution or the denouement. So these are the necessary ingredients of a story. And Jesus used a very conventional way to proclaim his own story. And he tells these people a very interesting story about a vineyard and an owner and servants and tenants and, of course, the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. Now, you may be asking yourself, who are these actors in this story, which was read for us by Toshi? Well, the owner himself is quite straightforward. It's God himself. And the vineyard refers to Israel. And the tenants... Other religious leaders, the servants, the prophets, and the beloved son, Jesus was really emphatically referring to himself. Now, depending on how you cut it, depending on how you look at it, the, the three gospels, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are about total, about 60 parables altogether. And this parable really is repeated in elsewhere. For example, it's also repeated in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. And it's also repeated in Mark chapter 12, verse, verses 1 to 11. But of all the three parables, Luke offers us a unique glimpse into what Jesus says about who He is. Now, I want to take a step back and ask yourself this question. Why is it important for us to know who Jesus is? Most of us know the gospel story, I assume here. So what's so new, what so wonderful about this story? Well, from this particular parable, which is the most emphatic of all the parables, of the 60 over parables that we have, this is the only one that is almost like an allegory. What is an allegory? you may be asking yourself. Well, an al- allegory is something, it's a literary device that talks about something, It's a personification of some. Uh, someone or character attribute. So, for example, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. The pilgrim himself is who? Any average uh, person, right? A Christian who is walking in the world. And Vanity Fair, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, is, of course, the world. And, of course, there are many other characters. Maybe I should use a more contemporary example, Uh, like Lord of the Rings, for example. And, and, and you have all those characters representing a certain thing. And in parables, usually you don't have something so allegorical as what is seen here in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. In fact, this is the only one that is so directly addressing the story of Jesus that it became Offensive to the hearers, especially the hearers who understood what he meant. I had a, let me, uh, allow me a little bit of digression here. I wanted to really tell this parable in a different way. I tried it in a different way and uh, it failed miserably. And so I decided to stick closer to the text rather than to present it in a different way so that you can feel the rhetorical effect. It is as if though I tell you a story, and right now, as I tell you the story, lo and behold, you found out that actually I'm referring to each and every one of you. Here, seated here. No names, no mention of anything, but I'm talking about you. How would you have felt if you had listened to that story? You'd be uncomfortable, will not you? You'd be asking yourself, what is he going to say next? Is he going to tell me all the dirty laundry? Is he going to tell all the gossips and tell everything to everyone? That was the problem in this text that we read today. The problem is that Jesus had a story. He had actors within it. Those actors refer to real people, and in fact, it referred to what is about to come. Now, you must also understand that during this time, this is near the period of the Passover. If you read further, a few more chapters down the road, you realize that Jesus would have been captured exactly the same way that is mentioned in this story. But moving ahead myself. Let's look at the action of this good story, the plot itself. What does it tell you about the plot? Well, as in all good plots, there's always a background, there's always conflicts, and of course, there's rising action, and there's a climax. Let me analyze the story, the action for you a little bit more. The background is this. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. Now, this imagery of a vineyard and owner living his own vineyard has been prevalent in the Old Testament already. You read it a lot of times, perhaps you would have known that this passage perhaps refers to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, or even Psalm 80, verses 8 to 13, or even Jeremiah 2:21, or Ezekiel 9:10. And of course, we read that in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. All these refers to a man or God planting his own vineyard, plucking out Israel and putting Israel into a land. And Israel is his vineyard. And they are to be fruitful and to multiply. They are to proclaim his excellencies. They are to live a radically set-apart life that will really attract people, especially those people in the land that they conquer, to turn and say, who in the world are you? Why are you so different from the rest of the world? And this is what the responsibilities of the Israelites and the Jews in Jesus' days are supposed to do. And so the, the background tells us that this man, referring to God, planted this vineyard, which is Israel, and left it, and allowed tenants to take care of it. The tenants we already know are the religious leaders who knew the law, the Torah, and they are to properly teach them the Torah. But they did, unfortunately. They taught the Torah so well that they added 613 more laws of their own. Like, for example, you're not allowed to do this, you know, you're supposed to leave your, your handkerchief somewhere if you were to walk 100 paces away because that is breaking the Sabbath. They had to reinvent more and more laws in order to cover up the inadequacies. It became a religious system rather than a relationship. That was a problem. And so that was the background here. But at the same time, the story continues on, and there is a conflict. And what is the conflict? The conflict is this, when the time came, the harvest time, there was a time of accountability. He, he referring to the landowner, sent a servant. And he, when he sent the servant, we realize that the people in those days did not want to give the servant what was due to the owner. Let me read for you in verse 10. It says, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Oops, we have a problem. And what is the problem? They refused to give anything to this servant. Now, by this stage, I'll be doing this. I'll be taking my water bottle. I'll be drinking so that I won't be too thirsty. And I will be fuming mad, wouldn't I? I will call upon soldiers, if I have, If since I'm rich, what would I do? I'll gather my forces and I'll go in and I'll make sure that they give me my fruits, which is owed to me. But they didn't. This landowner didn't. In fact, what was amazing to me is that this owner is extremely patient. And we continue on with the rising action. Next slide. He sent another and then another, the third one, to the point whereby he asked himself this question, what shall I do? In fact, he says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now you notice here that there is a progression of aggression. First, they beat him up, the, the servant. Next, they shamed him. Then he followed by wounding him. Now, the word wound is where you get this whole word in English called trauma. Traumatizo in the original language. And you see that these people were not only not frightened, not only were they not remorseful, not only did not, they did not repent from their ways, they increased their aggression as more and more of the servants came about to ask for more things from the rightful fruits of the land of this vineyard owner. And they all, three of them, returned empty-handed. And what really... Bewildered me is this that this landowner. I don't know if by this stage I what, what would you have done? Honestly, what would you have done? I mean, you'll be fuming mad, you'll be you know, trying your best to get your land back and perhaps chase them out or even kill them. But this is not what the landowner did. They, he in fact sent his only beloved son. The word beloved here is agapetos, which really means from the word agape. You know, the love, the unconditional sacrificial love. And this is what happened. He sent his beloved son thinking that they will respect him. And of course, we reach the climax of this whole story found in verses 14 and 15. What happened? These people said, Aha! Now we've got him. Verse 14 says, When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. In fact, this, this few words, this sentence here in verse 14 is pregnant with a lot of information here. In fact, the word here, inheritance, from the word kileros really means to cast Lots, So they literally kind of casted lots in order for them to decide to kill this beloved son. And in fact, this whole idea about reasoning among themselves, speaking among themselves in verse 14b, tells us it is exactly the same words that the Pharisees did. Earlier, if you were to read in the same chapter in verse 5, they were convening themselves after Jesus asked the question, the baptism of John the Baptist. So therefore, Jesus is drawing parallel, or at least Luke, the author, is drawing the same parallel. These wicked tenants came together, came in cahoots together, discussed and plotted against this beloved son. And earlier on, the Pharisees came together and plotted to find a solution and answer to Jesus' question. You see, the similarity is there. So therefore, Jesus himself is putting himself on the line and saying this, you guys, you guys, listen here. This is the story. This is my story. And this is a story about me, I, myself, and what I'm here to do. If you have ears to hear, hear. And this is where we read in verse verses 16, which is why the re- response of the crowd was quite um, negative. What did they say? They said this. After they heard all this, verse 15, he says, They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16 says, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. Why did they say that? Why did the crowds and even the Pharisees say, Surely not. Because we know the answer to the good story is this, that there is a judgment against their inability to accept the leadership and the sonship of Jesus of Nazareth. And there is a transfer, not just from Jews to Gentiles, not only just from Israel to the church, but I believe it's a transfer of leadership. That this landowner is about to give the vineyard to others. And this others refers to anyone who believes in this story. Anyone who calls upon the name that is above all other names. Let us then now go back and take a step back and ask ourselves this question. Why did Jesus say all those things? The truth of the matter is this. Jesus, in a short parable, summarized what will happen to him. He said that these people refused to listen to God. God has sent all the prophets in the Old Testament to warn them again and again to repent of their sins. They refused to do so. And finally, God said, enough. So in 722 BC, the Syrians came and took the 10 tribes away, the non-kingdom. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom, including Judah and Jerusalem, fell to the Babylonians. And so therefore, the people of God should have listened. But they didn't. And God says, what can I do? Like this vineyard owner, he was patient. He was willing. He's like a jittered lover. He wanted this bride of His so much. So He says, okay. He loved it so much that He sent His only beloved Son. But the beloved Son was not loved by His people, His chosen people. And they cast Him out. And we know that this, when Jesus said this was on Wednesday, came Friday, He hung on the cross exactly what he would have predicted here in this parable. They pushed him out of the city gates, hung him on the cross together with two robbers, two criminals, and he died the most ignoble death, even death on the cross. What would you have done if you're Jesus? What should you have done? Remember, let's go back to the earlier verse. Next slide, please. What is Jesus' heartbeat? If you remember earlier in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus read this scroll to announce his inaugural kingship to Israel and to the rest of the world. But you know something? He was reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, but he didn't complete the rest of the scroll. If you turn your Bibles to Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, and in fact, let me encourage you to read verse 3 as well. What do you get? You get this verse that was missed out. And it says, And the day of vengeance of our God. And it proceeds in verse 3 to explain what is this day of vengeance like. Why did Jesus withhold? Why did He withhold this last part, which is so important? It is because He's buying time like the Father. He's giving a chance. He's giving a chance for this gospel to be proclaimed to the rest of the nations. And it's in Matthew chapter 24, it says, then the end will come. So there is still time. There is still time for this story to be proclaimed to the rest of the world. Now, did Israel follow after the heartbeat of Jesus. Did they fulfill those year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year, to do justice, to act fairly, to care for the aged, the poor, the widows, the fatherless? Did they do so? No, they didn't. In fact, we hear that they go into a different drumbeat. Let me just give you a few summary. Indictment of, of them, right? Indictment of them. They say in Psalm 78, verses 10 to 11, it says, They did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he has shown them. In those days, there were no king judges, towards the end of the judges, just before they had the first king. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in Second Chronicles, it's exactly what Jesus said in chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. It says, The Lord, the God of the Father, sent persistently to them by the, His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of God Of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. My dear friends, for you and I, we are still in the story, do you know that, of Jesus? The story is this until he declares the second part of Isaiah 61, verse 2b, we still have time. And the story for you and I here today. Is to proclaim this good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came to seek and save the lost, that as we live out our lives according to what He has said in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, to reach out to the poor, to release the captives, to help the underprivileged, underbellies of the society, then we declare the year of the Lord's favor, and until He comes again. Because why? How can He come again? Because He did not just die on the cross. He wasn't just buried according to Scripture, but He rose again on the third day. And He says that He's going to come back one day. And when He comes back, there won't be another second chance for anyone. That, my dear friends, is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. That, my dear friends, is the story of Jesus in the New Testament. That, my dear friends, is the hope that you and I have when we face the world that is spinning out of control. Some of you knew that I had vertigo, very bad vertigo just last two days. That is the time when the doctors look at your re- results of your test and say that we need to go for further tests. That is why when in the middle of night, you look out of your window waiting for your teenage daughters to come back who said to you that she's doing her studies with her friends when you knew that she's somewhere else in Orchard Road or who, who knows where. That's why you know that even though your marriage fails, the lover of your soul never fails. That is why. That is why we continue on in this journey, this story to tell the world that my Saviour lives. That in Christ alone the cornerstone. And which is why in this last part, Jesus warned them that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the Jews rejected has become the cornerstone. This is, in fact, a refrain of a Jewish phrase that says, if the rock falls on a pot, alas. But if the pot falls on the rock, alas. <laughs> My aunt used to tell me this, you know, Jiao Tao, Ka Tao, You know, Tao Ka Deo Tao, <laughs> what it means is a stone hit the head, very terrible things will happen to you. And if your head hit the stone, also terrible, terrible things will happen to you. In the same way, let us not be crushed by the judgment of Jesus if we call upon His name as our Lord and as our Savior. And which is why in verse 19, we end off by saying this, the scribe and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Him at that very hour. Why? For they perceived that He had told them this parable against them. What is our heartbeat today? And what is the drumbeat? Next slide, please. For you and I, we are, as what Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are the chosen race. As this was passed on, to another, As the leadership of God's kingdom has been passed on to another, we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. My dear friends, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. In Christ alone, our cornerstone, there is all that we need from Him. My question to you today is, will you allow the cornerstone to build your life? Or will you stumble over this cornerstone? So God help us.